Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be here with you again today. How are you, Ben? I'm doing good, John. So we're continuing on with our Josh McDowell extravaganza. Last time, Josh was really trying to make the point that um, the Gospels that we have in our Bibles today are what the original authors actually wrote and are reliable eyewitness testimony. He makes the claim that Mark and Matthew were independent eyewitnesses, and Luke is somebody that interviewed eyewitnesses, and John is an eyewitness. From what all the historians and scholars on this topic say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic. They come from the source Uh, Matthew and Luke use Mark and a sayings gospel called Q. So there's no real reason to think that they're independent accounts. In fact, there's um, very strong reason to say that they're not. And the Gospel of John, we know, was written many years later in a very high form of Greek. um, And scholars also um, reject this notion that um, the Gospel of John comes from eyewitness testimony. So what we have instead are actually traditions that were passed down and written down decades after the time that Jesus actually lived, uh, and we can't have any kind of confidence that this actually stems from eyewitness testimony. And and Josh McDowell, you know, I think it's important to say that even if we um, grant him the evidence he's presented so far, it's still really thin evidence that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony. I mean, he claims that, again— the Gospel of Mark is based on Peter. We've shown that that's from a dubious source. We'll probably talk a little bit more about that. Um, but even if we say that, well, that doesn't mean that Mark is an eyewitness. He's not. Um, Luke doesn't claim to be an eyewitness. He claims to accumulate different um, uh, accounts and to give a definitive account. Um, and it's not necessarily based on eyewitness testimony. It's based on his accumulation of all the different, different information. Um, John... The Gospel of John does not claim to be an eyewitness. It claims to be based on eyewitness testimony. I mean, at one point, it claims to be the testimony of the beloved disciple. Um, and at another point, it seems to differentiate between the author and the beloved disciple. Um, not clear that it's based on eyewitness testimony, and we've shown it's historically much later um, than the synoptics. And um, therefore, that makes it uh, problematic for it to be written by an eyewitness. And... Um, Luke and Matthew are also uh, heavily uh, heavily rely on earlier sources that makes their claims of being eyewitnesses um, that well they don't make the claims to be eyewitnesses but it would make them um, dubious eyewitnesses um, because they're clearly drawing their uh, testimony from earlier sources. 
Yeah, and then Josh goes on to uh, cite uh, a verse in Second Peter, which uh, claims that where he claims to be an eyewitness, and it's totally dishonest on Josh's part because he's trying to present this like almost like a legal case of evidence. Well, all the evidence suggests that Second Peter is a forgery. It's the uh, it's the most obvious forgery in the Bible, um, according to New Testament scholars, and. Um, it's very dishonest for Josh to present this to a crowd of people that probably don't know better for the most part um, to bolster their faith on something that um, is an outright fabrication. But um, why don't we move on to see where Josh goes from here? Now, there's a second part of the writers of the scriptures. They not only wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts, but here is a critical key. In the presence of some of the most adamant some of the most hostile witnesses people that disagreed with him people who knew jesus they knew what he said knew what he did hostile witnesses they presented this in the presence of hostile knowledgeable witnesses and said you know what we're talking about they not only said we saw these things but in front of knowledgeable witnesses they threw it back in their lap and said you know what i'm talking about for example here again we'll go back to peter in Acts 2, 22, he is before a very antagonistic Jewish audience. They really thought that the disciples and the apostles were presenting a false Messiah. And any sincere Jew would have to stand against that. Strongly stand against that. And so they did. So here is Peter before this antagonistic audience. And notice what he does. This here is one of the best preservers of truth. He said, men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, and notice what he says, a man attested to you. In other words, not just to us. He is standing in front of these hostile people and say, look, he was attested to you with miracles and wonders in signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Well, I'll tell you this. If that antagonistic Jewish audience had not seen those miracles and those wonders and signs, literally everything that Peter was said would have been discounted and thrown out. And he would have probably been lucky to make it out of there alive. Uh, ben, what do you think about this argument? So, I mean, I think you've raised the point before. Like, in all these, we're only getting one side of this argument from the text. So we don't know... It's not an honest accounting of the response of these leaders. Maybe they said, oh, we don't know this stuff. Like, or, I mean, I think all this does is get you to the point where you can say um, that at a point there were certain claims made about the historical Jesus. Historically, there were certain claims made about the historical Jesus. That the claims made about the historical Jesus in history are not equal to the historical Jesus. I think that those are it's a separation that you have to make. Um, we know that at a certain point, Christian communities and Christian believers started to make certain claims about Jesus. It doesn't mean that those claims go back to the historical Jesus. That's a different process. Historical claims made about Jesus and claims that are actually about the and what we know or can figure out about the historical Jesus. And I think that um, the claims show us what people believe at certain points in history. And it's making an assumption that the account that's told in Luke is a historical account, which is 
the entire question or the account given by Luke and Acts is a historical account, which is the entire question um, that we're trying to ask. So I think that's problematic from a lot of different ways. Yeah, I think the problem is twofold because uh, the actual claim that Josh McDowell is making is uh, dubious. And even if we grant him the claim, uh, it still doesn't prove the point he's trying to make. In the book of Acts, um, the, the apostles are talking to crowds of people, and he's assuming that the crowds of people have also witnessed miracles of Jesus. And he's saying, if that wasn't true, uh, Peter would have been lucky to get out of there alive. Well, first of all, we have no idea if the author is telling the truth here. I mean, of course, someone writing a book trying to persuade people that Christianity is true is going to say, yeah, everyone saw these miracles. Again, like Ben said, um, that's not, this is not evidence that these things are true. This is evidence that someone, after the fact, wrote this story. I'm not, I'm not really seeing the connection between somebody writing the story and having any reason to think that story is true. Also, even if you accept that this account is true, you got to remember, we're, like, we're talking about a, t- a period of time where everybody believed in miracles. There was miracle workers all over the place. Um, even in the book of Acts, it describes other miracle workers. And it doesn't say, but they didn't actually do miracles. Ben has talked a lot about how like, this was a culture of magic. This was a culture where magic was real, demons were real, and um, and healings were real, and it wasn't just Jesus that could do them. Um, the disciples themselves do healings um, and do uh, and do miracles. That um, Jesus empowers them to do that. So I I think also like this idea that people in that time period may have believed that Jesus really was some sort of magician or miracle worker. Um, again, doesn't mean that it's actually true. I also think, like from a literary perspective, that there are a, there are places where um, texts from this time try to give the illusion of authenticity, where that is not actually the case, and that's a longer, um, probably a full episode on its own. But we have places in the Bible where um, people are trying to authenticate their writings in a way that's very dishonest. Um, to make claims that uh, give them authority in the name of other people in a way that's very dishonest. We'll use Second uh, Thessalonians, for example. Uh, most scholars think Second uh, Thessalonians is a forgery. There's also a warning against false letters going around in the name of the apostles in Second Thessalonians. Now, part of that is written probably as a cover, because it is a false letter written under the name of the apostles. So there are little things there that are sometimes clues to uh, like a nefarious purpose. Like claims of authenticity don't mean that they're actually authentic claims. And he quotes Second Peter uh, in the previous episode. We we talked about it. And in Second Peter, uh, the author who's claiming to be Peter says, "We did not uh, follow cleverly devised fables or something to that effect." And um, ironically, he's denying what he's actually doing. Because the author himself is not actually Peter. Um, so to your point, yeah, the authors are including text to try to authenticate um, what they're writing as being legitimate. Um, and sometimes that itself can be a sign that it is not legitimate. And I think that this will become important when we start talking about um, more in depth about the church fathers and the accounts of martyrdom of the disciples too. Because 
assuming that um, texts are just innocent accounts is a assumption that's going to get you into a lot of trouble. There's um, there's various things that are included in texts that are clues to the time that the texts are written, um, not the history that they're describing. And so we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But what does history show this happened? Thousands were added to the church. You see, it was presented in the presence of knowledgeable people. Where if they would have dared to depart from the truth, the very community itself would have corrected it. They appealed to the knowledge of their opponents. And I know when I go into a debate, uh, and over the years I probably had close to 200 to 250 debates. And I study my opponent's position more than I do my own. I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. i got to find out why does my opponent believe what he or she believes. And so when I go into a debate, I would constantly turn to my opponent on some point and say, isn't this true? Or you know what I'm talking about. Well, boy, you better be accurate and you do that. It'll be shoved right back down your throat. And uh, you can be right 19 times, miss it once. And if your opponent is sharp, he or she will step up and bury you that so I just want to jump in for a minute when he talks about how the community would correct it. Um, well, how do we know that the community did not try to correct it? I mean, part of the reason that um, so many texts are lost to history is because ultimately orthodoxy continued copying uh, what the orthodox texts were and removing um, critical texts and texts that were quote-unquote heretical. Um, the uh, author Celsus comes to mind, who Celsus was a critic of Christianity. And all we have from Celsus is in what um, another early church father wrote against Celsus. We don't have Celsus' original writings. So when he's talking about the community would have corrected it, it's like, well, maybe there was correction and that's been lost. Maybe there was dissent. We know that there was a uh, huge spectrum of beliefs in the early church. And we know that it was ultimately uh, orthodoxy that won out against these other heresies. So again, as far as the self-correcting mechanism, um, I would say it's not really a self-correcting mechanism as it was the birth of orthodoxy and censorship of dissenting voices. Yeah, it's really like a, a horrible take on orthodoxy and the way it's produced, because orthodoxy is produced from sort of plenty, um, like a polarity and a, a multiplicity of different beliefs, and is slowly whittled down later on into more and more of a core belief. It's not a core belief that was, it's not, orthodoxy is not a return to the original. Orthodoxy is formulating something totally different from a multiplicity of uh, voices that are present in earlier Christianity. Um, that's just like the reality of how orthodoxy was created. I also think it's like interesting. Like, so Josh McDowell is not really like drawing on any like historical context for the lives of the disciples, the witnesses, and the writing of the scripture. Um, so, for example, historians I think say that Paul was put to death before the temple was destroyed. Before any of the Gospels were written, Paul was already dead. So that's one person who would not be able to verify what's written in Acts in his name about what he said. So there wasn't like this spectrum of witnesses 
that were readily available to correct any teaching that was aberrant to their testimony. That's just a, a false um, notion. Paul wasn't even alive by the time the Gospels were written. So those Gospels could take um, whatever they liked about Paul's teachings and whatever they didn't like about Paul's teachings, if they even had access to Paul's teachings. Um, so, so the point is just that there wasn't this like council that was able to correct um, teachings that were considered false. There were no false teachings at that time. It was a formulation of what teachings were going to be true and what teachings were going to be false that happens in real history. And we'll see it very clearly, like I said, when we get to the actual martyrdom accounts of the disciples. Yeah, his argument here really depends on a false understanding of history. That, and, and his false understanding is that, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts are eyewitness testimonies that were written, you know, very early. Um, like, oh, there would be a community there to correct it. It's like, well, would there, would there be a community there to correct it? Like, you know, 60 years later, like I said, how do we know they didn't correct it? We have no knowledge of any of this stuff. All we have is a story that somebody wrote. I could right now write a story about something that happened 70 years ago and claim that um, everybody around everybody around us was amazed by this miracle that we witnessed. And where's the community to self-correct that? All I did was write a story and then start uh, spreading it around and transmitting it around. So I just don't, again, like he's making a lot of assertions here, um, but none of it is really backed up by the evidence. It, does, it just logically doesn't hold water. And it's like terrible, terrible history. Like... Christianity, there was a community to gauge the truth of Christian claims. It was called the Jewish community because Christianity started out as a Jewish sect. It was able to maintain its identity as a Jewish sect. It was within the spectrum of Judaism. It was open to Gentiles. That was like the sort of like radical adaption of Paul's theology. Historically, it began as a Jewish sect. There was a split between Judaism and Christianity. And you see it in the Bible. You see it uh, as a slow walk as Christians and Judaism slowly like separated themselves into something different. And eventually Christianity became much more of like a Gentile-centric, Gentile-conceptualized faith. But that was, also, that was a, a difference. And, and so the community was, early, was Judaism during that time. And it rejected Christianity's claims as aberrant and false. So there was a community to gauge whether these claims aligned with like what people believed about the coming of Messiah in like amongst like uh, messianic Judaism of that time and those people overwhelmingly rejected Christianity. There was a split between Christianity and Judaism that happened because Judaism ultimately rejected the claims of Christianity as it became more um Hellenized. Um so Again, it's just like a bad take on history. Like, if you want to say there was no community to, or, or the community would gauge the truth of Christianity, then I think the biggest thing is, did the Jewish community, like, overwhelmingly convert to Christianity? And they did not. They wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. Second, they appealed to the knowledge of the readers and listeners concerning the evidence that they spoke about. And so I believe that what we have here is literally what Jesus said and what Jesus did. I believe what was written down was true of what Christ said and did. I just want to say really quickly another thing just that just occurred to me. If all of these 
you know, the way he's describing it, it seems like thousands of people were witnesses of these miracles of Jesus. Um, why do we not have more testimony of this from historians, um, you know, from, from secular sources outside of a Christian tradition? Um, you know, what comes to mind is some of the accounts in Matthew where um, the, the graves were opened up and everyone, all the dead people were, you know, walking around Jerusalem and were seen by many. Um, if that were the case, you'd think you would have some record of that in history, but no, there's no record. We just have the Gospels. Yeah, and I mean, I think, again, it goes back to the fact that there wasn't a differentiation between um, Christianity as just another Jewish messianic cult early on. It wasn't like something that anyone was concerned about. There's no, there's very, very um, little historical attestation to Christianity um, in the first century. I think one place, maybe, um, that showed even that anyone outside of Christianity was aware of this religion. Um, and again, it's there was a, a formulation of differentiating Christians, um, not even a term that was originally used, um, and um, from uh, just another part of Judaism. And um, to just like, ignore that whole historical traje- trajectory. And I also just think, so that's one thing. And then I also just think it's like Josh McDowell, once again, is making a claim that is not substantiated by what he said so far. Like, um, the person that wrote Luke claiming that Paul said something um, does not mean that the person in Luke is somehow an accurate uh, recorder of history. And because Paul claims in Luke to be backed up by um, that these things were not done in the dark. I mean, I don't even know in the context, is he talking about just his ministry was not done in the dark? I mean, I don't think he's talking about the evidence. Like Paul doesn't even know about Jesus's life and from what we have in the, um, the uh, authentic Pauline uh, epistles. Paul seems to be very unconcerned with the historical Jesus and the things that he did. Um, I just think that it's an argument that doesn't really stand up to the internal evidence that he's uh, like using, um, is begging the question of whether that evidence is even accurate, uh, ignores like the history that we know, um, and is also not proving the point that is what he's claiming, that this evidence is historically accurate. He's never shown anything that makes that clear. Yeah, and I'm going to say what I keep saying over and over, that um, this same claim could be made by any fanciful claim today. Um, Somebody uh, was abducted by aliens, and they tell the story. They may even have witnesses, and they say, these people saw it, and those people will say, yes, I saw it. Um, According to that, like we should believe those tales, big tales of Bigfoot, tales of all kinds of things. So... Um, it's just not really holding water for me as being like evidence that um, we should be relying on. Even the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, and Christ appeared to over 500 people at one time. And then notice what he says. He said, the majority of them are alive right now. I mean, wow. If he didn't appear to 500 people and the majority alive right now, Paul was saying, go check it out yourself. First of all, how do we know that um, somebody didn't go and like research that? that we, again, we only have the record of what we have. So maybe someone did correct it. Maybe somebody at some point wrote a big thing against Paul saying, hey, 
I just tried to interview these people and they all said it didn't happen. We just have no record of it happening either way. So I don't really understand how you can make it as a positive case. The other thing I think it's important to note is he's saying these eyewitness accounts are uh, reasons to believe this is historically accurate. Well, the way Paul describes the resurrection appearances is uh, not at all consistent with what we find in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. Um, there, are, There's so many internal contradictions between all of them. So even if you do accept it as eyewitness accounts, you still have a reliability problem because which version, which version actually happened? Which version is true? Yeah, I mean, to give the devil his due, um, I think that this passage in 1 Corinthians is actually... The closest, I mean, it's the earliest documentation that you have for resurrection appearances, or it, it's in the earliest <clears throat> source that we have, because Paul is the first sources that we have for uh, Christianity. Um, so this is probably, like, in reality, the strongest claim. Now, the problem is that historians and scholars know that um, Paul inserted this this claim it was a creedal claim that was going around amongst early christianity so not something that paul knew firsthand most scholars would say but something that was a creed of early christianity that paul inserted into his letter like you guys all know here's the creed that we all believe we know that paul didn't experience these things firsthand because paul himself said um that he was born after the fact and remember paul is the earliest writer here and paul is saying like he was born um, at a later time, so he was wasn't able to witness these things. That's why he w- had to. Jesus had to appear to him as a vision. So even what Paul is saying, um, Paul is saying, you know, I, as the earliest author, Paul is saying, I was not even a witness to these things. So what Josh McDowell is saying, authors that came after Paul were eyewitnesses to these things, uh, which is a, again another reason why historians don't take these arguments very seriously. So yeah, so you have a claim in an early um, book, but that we know doesn't go to Paul, and I think that that also makes it like dubious in its um, origin, um, because if you know that something is not by the author, it just casts doubt and complexity on just taking it as like something um, that we could even guarantee. I mean, I don't know that if scholars reject that it could be like a later interpolation into Paul. Um, I think that's like not a totally unrealistic. Um, possibility um but but again it's a creed that er, the early church believed no one would dispute the fact that the early church had a creedal belief that jesus rose from the dead and i think we've talked about it before the problem of uh, the end of mark of mark 16 like the end of the eyewitness testimony in that gospel is just the women who found the empty tomb um there's no appearances of jesus afterwards um and they don't tell anyone so you have that evidentiary chain of eyewitness testimony, alleged eyewitness testimony, ending with the women at the tomb. So it's even a question of how that information was passed on. Um, but you, but you have that was a problem, and so you did have a later addition to Mark that tried to resolve that problem by having resurrection appearances of Jesus. It was a problem that the early church tried to early quote unquote church tried to correct by even adding an addition to Mark. They needed to have uh, post-resurrection uh, appearances. Um, people do not think that the end of Mark is, like scholars know, your Bible will have a footnote that the end of Mark is not original to the Gospel of Mark. Um, and, um, yeah, I just think that it's just not backing up his claim with any type of uh, actual evidence. And I'm going to go one further, Ben. 
um, I would say that Matthew and Luke are also trying to correct the end of Mark that they didn't like. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we can say with certainty that there was a belief, and again, this belief predates the Gospels, because Paul, if you, if you say Paul is quoting a creed that predates Paul's letters, so this is an early creed. So we can say, yes, early on, there were people who claimed there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and believed that. That was a belief that was held in early Christianity. That's the furthest claim that you can make. Um, but I don't think the implication, again, is that you can go check with these eyewitnesses. He's probably just saying, like, we have these elders in the churches. Yeah, and that's and a good point. He doesn't cite any names. It's not like uh, it's not like a citation where you can go and ask the person. So I just don't think that really um, holds a lot of water. But I also think it is plausible that in Paul's day, there were people still claiming that they saw the resurrected Jesus. I don't think that's an outlandish claim. Um, again, there are people right now that claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. Today, I can go talk to them now. I mean, that that doesn't really... That's not all that persuasive to me, because there's people that claim all kinds of things. There's people that claim they see ghosts and uh, their ancestors and all kinds of things. So none of that is all that persuasive from a historical standpoint, which is what he's trying to do here. He would have been buried instead of being, being killed by the, the, the Jewish leaders. The church would have probably killed him uh, for doing that. Ben, I keep coming back to this point just really quickly. I'm a little bit confused why he keeps saying this. Like, if they had said something that wasn't true, they would have been killed. And then he goes on later, we'll get into this, talking about how they were all killed. So doesn't that kind of undercut his point there? Yeah, it's strange. To make a claim that the, like, we don't really know the reasons, accepting the claims that these people were killed, we don't really have good reasons for why they were killed either. They could have been killed because they were speaking some sort of something that was considered heresy or false doctrine, and they were dragged out and stoned. I mean, we don't have, like, a clear... So, yeah, I think your point is valid. Like, there was a correction that maybe happened and that it led to these people's death. Like exactly what Josh McDowell is saying would be the proof that they were speaking something false is actually what ends up happening that he claims is like a validation of the truth of what they're saying. Yeah. And I'm not claiming what's like, like not to uh, preview too much what we're going to talk about with his ultimate point about martyrdom. Um, but, you know, I don't accept the history that Josh McDowell accepts and historians don't accept the history either about these martyrdoms. And, and that's just a little preview of what we're going to get into. I'm just saying he seems to be undercutting his own point because his whole point here is like, if they said something that was false, they would have been killed. And then later on, he's like, they were killed for what they taught. <laughs> so I just, I just think it's a little bit of a, of a circular argument and or talking out of both sides of his mouth or however you want to put it. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, it's problematic from an internal perspective. Like, I think he's misusing—it's it's bad theology, it's bad history. Everything about it is just incorrect. Like, his internal arguments don't stand up internally. Um, and they're also just, like, really bad history. And I think that's—so we're—it's it, it, complicated because it, sometimes we're arguing sort of, like, the internal argument that he's making— um, and even saying, like, if you make the assumptions that Josh McDowell is making, that we can take these things as historical, his argument still doesn't make sense. Because the what he's saying is the history is exactly—the consequences are exactly um, what he would claim for false teaching. Yeah, These I people were eventually put to death. Internally, yeah. his argument makes no sense. Um, and then he also internally wants to say 
these people were put to death, therefore their testimony must be true because they were put to death for it. Um, so there's a logical inconsistency internal to his argument that we're trying to point out. And then also just saying that all the history that he's claiming is also extremely dubious from a historical perspective. So he just has problems on top of problems with the way that he's formulating this house of cards of evidence that he claims demands a verdict. Yeah, and we're, we don't have a, um, an organized critique here because we're taking him um, on his own timeline through this video. But we are critiquing him on several different levels. We'll um, assume his premise and just deal with, like, can you draw the conclusion that he's drawing, even if we assume his arguments are true? And in, in most cases, we say no. And then we actually argue with the actual evidence that he's giving and say, historically, that's not accurate either. But I just want to solidify what we're saying here about the, about the logic of this. Uh, later on, he's going to get into the fact that um, the disciples died as evidence that what they were saying is true. But what he's arguing here is if they were to be killed, uh, it would be evidence that the people said what they're saying is not true. So it's like a direct contradiction of his own point. It's just a logical critique here, but um, I think it's noteworthy because um, it's two major points he's making really close uh, in, in this presentation to each other, and um, it's uh, totally inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is like a point to belabor because part of what we're doing is saying that whatever conclusion you want to draw about the historical Jesus and historical Christianity. You should do a good job of making an argument that makes sense. If you're just constructing an argument based on evidence selectively chosen to reach your conclusion, you're going to end up with bad history. What we're not doing is trying to work our way backwards from a conclusion. I'm trying to walk with Josh McDowell's argument and show that in every way his argument is totally uh, false. And... Um, if you want to make an argument like he's making, um, you should do a better job of um, using real history and also like having some respect for the text that you're using and what it's actually saying and its historical context than what Josh McDowell is doing. So it's like a critique also of just his sloppy, bad methodology and making bad arguments and like propagandizing an audience um, like that already agrees with you. Like that's another thing that I just find offensive. And I, so I think that it's okay to belabor the point that his internal argument is like extremely sloppy and problematic. Here you have the apostles, the followers, the intimate followers of Christ. I think you could be fairly accurate in saying 11 of the 12 died martyrs deaths. You could be very accurate by saying 10 of the 12. Um, I'll say 11 of the 12. 11 of the 12 died martyrs' deaths. The other died in exile, John. But what did they die for? Look, you read the book of Acts. You go back to the early church and the early church fathers. They died for one thing, an empty tomb and the appearance of a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And in their own words, they said, for 40 days, we lived with him, we ate with him after the resurrection with many convincing proofs. And none of the 12 died from the most heinous deaths in history. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, the man who, you might say, put Harvard Law School on the map, 
wrote the three great volumes in the laws of legal evidence, the royal professor of law. And in studying uh, military history, he made this statement. There is no equal to what the apostles went through and never once denied that Christ had been raised in the dead and they had seen him and lived with him for 40 days. Not one of them in the greatest persecution, everything, ever denied that and torture. He said in the annals of military warfare, there is no equal. I mean, you go back a number of years and look at Watergate. Nobody was threatened with death or anything, the death penalty, anything else. And yet, they couldn't even keep a secret for more than a few days. And one after another started breaking. And yet, here were men that were persecuted, they were tortured. And they never once denied that after he was crucified and buried for 40 days, they lived with him and ate with him. Now, here are two legitimate questions that that appeal to that. So Josh is going to go on. Let me just jump in a little bit. So um, this is probably the biggest point that Josh McDowell makes. This is what you hear most often from believers as um, super strong evidence in support of uh, the Gospels and Christianity and the resurrection. And Ben and I, um, outside of doing this show, have really been researching this a lot, and we've decided we want to do a, like at least an episode or perhaps a series on this because this alone just has so much to unpack. Uh, many other apologists have made this claim also. Lee Strobel comes to mind with his book, The Case for Christ. So we do want to um, give this argument um, a lot more time than what we're able to do on this show. But what we're going to do here is give an overview. We're going to kind of give an outline of our um, problems with this argument and why we think this doesn't hold water at all. But I guess, Ben, I'll let you start. So I've been looking at uh, Candida Moss's uh, amazing book, uh, The Myth of Persecution. And um, she really makes like an amazing historical case for just the ahistorical nature of um, the stories of early persecution in the church. And one of the most fascinating things is the way that the church fathers um, construct persecution narratives um, and what they do. And this is the main focus of the narratives of the deaths of the apostles. It's not in the way that Josh McDowell uses them at all, curiously. Josh McDowell uses them as sort of evidence for the testimony of the truth of Christianity. No, it's much more complicated the way that the church fathers use them. Um, first of all, his, scholars do not take the church fathers as historically accurate um, in their depiction of these events. But it's also very interesting the way that they insert heretical beliefs from their own time and contrast it with the orthodox beliefs that they're trying to formulate. So the heretical beliefs that for example, Eusebius, the, the things that Eusebius thinks are heresy are integrated into the narratives of the deaths of the saints, and the saints themselves express the perspective that Eusebius um, or Uranius um, want to um, create as the orthodox position in their day. So this is really the process of... Um, 
the the function that these persecution myths had for the church fathers. They are trying to formulate orthodoxy. The way that they're using, the way that they're doing that is to put orthodox beliefs, what they think is orthodox, and use the early uh, the disciples of Jesus um, as their tools for expressing their their beliefs of what should be orthodoxy. And like so you have like in Polycarp uh, an account of Polycarp going to a bath and being confronted by a person um, that's spouting a um, proto-heretical belief. Um, and Polycarp like um, disengages with that person and leaves. Well, that's because in the time of that account, they wanted to establish that that belief was heretical, and the way to um, deal with heretical beliefs was to depart from the heretical teachers. Um, you have in Eusebius like the beginning of the idea of a race of Christians and the idea that heretics are equal to persecutors. So any type of persecution whatever historical root that has, anyone that dies. And the construction of these myths, like, create, um, they, they draw heavily on um, cultural myths of uh, going to your death willingly. Um, those are like literary devices that are used by the early church fathers. So, again, not innocent accounts written for a purpose, not historical accounts, they're totally exaggerations of the lives of historical figures in order to serve a literary purpose and are formulated with literary categories about what it means to go to your death in an honorable way. Um, much more like uh, indebted to like Greco-Roman ideas of what it means to be in, uh, go to an honorable death. And the main purpose of these, of these uh, narratives is to formulate orthodoxy in the time of the writer against heresy in the time of the writer and use historical figures from the early church like the same way that they do in the Bible um, when uh, there's a person that's trying to claim authority uh, in the name of Peter, who's not actually Peter. Um, these church fathers are doing a very similar thing. They want to tie apostolic um, orthodoxy um, to the earliest disciples. So their beliefs of what orthodoxy is need to be tied to the disciples. And the way they do that is with these accounts of martyrdom. So there's a couple problems with what he's talking about. Um, first is just the history itself. Can we trust um, what he's saying? He's saying, oh, we know 11 of the 12 um, were persecuted and tortured and killed for this belief in the resurrection. Um, okay, what's the evidence of that? Well, I can tell you without going into too much detail that there's no evidence of that. And um, when we do our full-fledged episode on this, we're going to go through all 11 that he's talking about and, in, and even some others that he doesn't even mention um, that's, uh, that, according to him, would have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and then, and then later died for this. Um, so number one, um, well, all we have, uh, the evidence for the deaths of the disciples come from centuries later, uh, traditions. Usually 
miraculous tales in apocryphal books that Josh McDowell and most Christians would not accept as being historically accurate. Um, most of them involve a um, an attempt to kill uh, this such and such disciple, and but the attempt failed because of a miracle or God preserved him, so they had to kill him in another way. And there's tale after tale of the same type of thing. Um, these are legendary tales. Historians do not consider these things real. We have no idea how these people actually died, for the most part. And, um, and we'll go through them. But let me, uh, let me play a little bit more of Josh, and then um, I'll, I'll continue. The first is this. You could honestly say, well, a lot of people have died for a lie. And that's true. A lot of people have died for a lie. I mean, you can go back through history and see people that have died for lies later found out was a lie. And so they see, what's the big deal? Well, here's the issue when it comes to the apostles. Yes, I will grant it. A lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was the truth. They thought it was the truth. Now, here's a catch. If the resurrection did not take place, and that for 40 days, these 12 men had not lived with Christ, eaten with Christ, everywhere for 40 days, then they had to know it was a lie. And here's the catch. Yes, a lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was the truth. If the apostles died for a lie, through the torture, everything they went, they had to know it was a lie. I trust them more than most people I've ever studied in history. They went through the test of death to determine their veracity. Okay, let me uh, jump into this a little bit. Um, first of all, we don't know what the first followers of Jesus actually believed regarding the resurrection. We know that there were some that believed in the resurrection, but it should be noted that even in the Bible, um, when it talks about uh, Jesus appearing to the 11, you know, Judas was already gone, so Jesus is appearing to the 11, it specifically says, some doubted. So some of the 11, um, even, and I'm trying to find the reference to this, this is at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and I'm going to start reading at verse 16, it says, Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. This is after the resurrection. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So, even um, the 11 disciples, or he's saying they, they so believed this that they went to their deaths. Well, even in the Bible itself, some doubted, that, some doubted this. Um, and again, this is even assuming that, that these are historical testimony. So, we don't know what they believed about the resurrection. In fact, when you get to Paul, which is, again, the first author in the New Testament, the earliest author, um, it almost seems like Paul is talking about a non-bodily resurrection of Jesus. And Paul seems to, to say that his vision of Jesus is the same that happened to the original disciples. He doesn't talk about um, sticking his hands in the wounds of Jesus or eating with Jesus or anything that um, the disciples claim. All he says is that he was seen by them. And in the same way, uh, Paul saw this vision and heard a voice of Jesus. So I can foresee a scenario where 
in the same way people have seen their ghost of their dead relatives, um, people that were cult-like followers of this messianic figure, Jesus, after he was crucified, some of them had visions of Jesus. And yeah, they may have gone to their deaths um, because of that belief. But again, now we're into that argument. We have no idea how they went to their death. And, and one thing I think it's important to note here is that there's a lot of assumptions going into what Josh McDowell is saying here. I mean, one assumption is that the disciples would have had the ability to recant. There's an assumption that the authorities went up to the disciples that died and said, I'm going to kill you unless you recant this belief that the resurrection happened. No, most likely they were, if they were killed, they were just martyred um, the same way that um, any persecuted people were martyred. Let Um, me just jump real quick in with another like just little historical tidbit too that uh again from candida moss's book like what she talks about is um the inability of the church fathers to differentiate between um someone being put to death um for some reason um in an unofficial way and um large-scale disenfranchisement of Christians based on their belief that happened eventually in the Roman Empire, where they weren't allowed to serve in public offices um, if they were Christian. What she says is even um, even in like the period of uh, where Christians were forced to swear allegiance to the imperial cult, she says there's really no historical evidence of how that was enforced um, by Rome of like mass arrests of how someone would prove that um the idea that rome was persecuting christians does not have good historical basis in the early church rome was extremely either um didn't know about christianity or had no interest in christianity whatsoever in the early church that's just the historical reality. Um, so there's like this like idea of like Roman persecution being constant in the early church. That's just a uh, a historical myth. Well, okay, Nero um, did um, execute Christians because Nero started a fire that destroyed a large portion of Rome and blamed it on Christians. So again, if you accept that history. Uh, that Christians were killed by the Romans, does that get you any closer to saying, oh, well, these people died for, they wouldn't have gone to their deaths? No, it's just Christians being killed. Um, you really have to assume a lot for his argument to make sense. You have to you have to assume that they had some ability to prevent their death and execution by like renouncing um, something that they knew was true. And there's, there's absolutely no evidence of any of that. Um, so there's a lot of kind of crazy assumptions, but let me, let me get into a little bit here without going into too much detail. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, um, we do have, um, attestation outside of, um, the Bible that he was put to death and that comes from, uh, Josephus. In Josephus' story, he talks about, um, James being executed by the Jews And in the story, if you read it, it's all for political reasons. It has absolutely nothing to do with um, James' belief in the resurrection of Jesus. So even if you take Josephus, it um, has nothing to do with what Josh McDowell is talking about for the reason that he was martyred. 
um, according to this, he would have been killed whether or not he renounced Jesus. It has nothing. It had nothing to do with that. And we don't even know if this is the same James, brother of Jesus, that we have in the gospel. In fact, there's a reason to think that um, it's talking about um, James, the brother of Jesus, son of Domnius, which is a, a different political figure at the time. And again, we will get into that in our future episode. And then Eusebius also describes... Um, the death of James, and what he describes in uh, Book 2, Chapter 23, in his Ecclesiastical History, writing in the 4th century, he says that there was a Jewish plot against Christians, and it focused on James. Uh, The scribes and Pharisees were frustrated because so many Jews were becoming Christians. The Pharisees brought James to the top of the temple and told him to publicly renounce Jesus so all the people could hear, but James went up and refused to recant. The Pharisees ran up and pushed James off the temple, but miraculously, James survived. And then they stoned him, but he survived that too. So they picked up a club and they beat him to death and then he died. That's the same story that Eusebius is telling. It doesn't sound anything like the Josephus story. Um, And again, that also has nothing to do with uh, his belief in the resurrection. And um, I just want to quote William Barclay, who says, much in Eusebius' story may well be legendary. And this, by the way, is the best attestation we have to the death of any of the disciples. Um, Everything else is very late, um, legendary, miraculous tales uh, in Catholic tradition to bolster um, the sainthood of these people, Uh, many many times trying to uh, attribute miracles Um, to their survival of execution attempts. But we know absolutely nothing about it. Um, I can go through a few of these. Matthew, uh, there's divided traditions. Um, Clement of Alexandria says that Matthew died of natural causes in about 90 AD, so certainly that wouldn't work. But there are uh, traditions that he was martyred Um, all kinds of different legends. Some say he was killed in Ethiopia, Macedonia, Parthia, India. Some say he was stabbed, beheaded, stoned, crucified, and set on fire. There's just no conclusive evidence as to how or when he died. Um, The same is true about Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, depending on uh, which gospel you read. Um, Some say he was beaten, then crucified. Some say beheaded. Some say flayed or skinned. Um, famously, Michelangelo has Nathaniel holding his skin on the Sistine Chapel. But again, there's no real evidence to what happened to the actual person. All we have is centuries later um, traditions. And I would say that in the Protestant tradition, which is what Josh McDowell comes out of, uh, they reject all these miraculous claims. If you're going to accept these type of traditions, you might as well be a Catholic. Um, because these are the type of church traditions that the Catholics say, because they don't hold to sola scriptura, they believe that um, the church works through church tradition. And all these things in church tradition are guided by the Holy Spirit. But Josh McDowell doesn't hold that view. So it, it really makes even less sense that he's making this point here. Again, you use the points that back up your argument You cherry-pick the arguments that back up your argument, and you ignore those that don't. Um, Another one that we have attested to is Peter, who was said to have been crucified upside down. Um, This comes from the Acts of Peter in the 2nd century, which is an apocryphal text which Christians do not believe is historically accurate. They do not include it in the canon of Scripture. But when it bolsters their argument here, 
they're like Josh McDowell is completely fine to use it. But no, it's clearly not a historical account. It's a legendary account. Um, and I just uh, want to read this from Wikipedia about Peter. In the epilogue of the Gospel of John, Jesus hints at the death by which Peter would glorify God, saying, When you are old, you, are stretch out, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is interpreted by some as a reference to Peter's crucifixion. Theologians Donald Fay Robinson and Warren M. Smaltz have suggested that the incident in Acts 12, 1-7, where Peter is released by an angel and goes to another place, really represents an idealized account of his death, which may have occurred in Jerusalem prison as early as A.D. 44. But there's no evidence that Peter ever went to Rome. And long story short, you can go through each of these figures and I want to do this on this future episode I keep referencing, um, but there's just no evidence to back up Josh McDowell's claim at all. And this is the crux of his whole argument, that these disciples um, would have had to die for a lie, um, knowing that the truth of the gospel, which, which would be ridiculous. Yeah, and I really just want to like hammer home the point that these narratives were constructed for a purpose, and that purpose was to reflect things that were happening in the time the narratives were constructed. Um, I, I just wanted to say one thing really quickly. Um, so the the story about Nero and blaming the Christians for the fire goes back to Tac, uh, Tacitus, who was a, a Roman historian. He says that the people of Rome blamed Nero for the fire, and Nero in turn deflected responsibility onto the Christians. So um, I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, Candida Moss's book, because she does talk about this a little bit, and I think it's interesting. Um, And like I said, we'll dive more deeply into this maybe another time, but um, it's fascinating. So uh, Tacitus explains that Nero fastened guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on the Christians who were hated for their abominations. Christians were arrested and interrogated for information about others in the city. In the end, an immense multitude was convicted and condemned to die all kinds of extraordinary ways. Nero devised uh, particularly cruel forms of death for the Christians. He had them dressed in animal skins and thrown to wild animals to be ripped apart. They were drenched in tar and burned alive as torches to light the night sky. All the stuff that we heard... um, about Christian martyrdom in the early churches really comes from this account in Tacitus. Um, In Roman biographies of the Emperor Nero, it's well known for his temper and cruelty, but that does not mean that this story is completely believable. We need to exercise some caution when it comes to dealing with Tacitus. Tacitus' annals dates to 115 to 120 uh, CE. That's at least 50 years after the events he describes. His use of the term Christian is somewhat anachronistic. It's highly unlikely that at the time the Great Fire occurred, anyone recognized Jesus' followers as a distinct and separate group. Jesus' followers themselves did not appear to begin using the name Christian until at the earliest, the very end of the first century. It seems more likely that Tacitus' discussion of the events in Rome around the time of the fire reflects his own situation around 115. Tacitus is evidence for growing popular animosity towards Christians in the second century, but he does not provide evidence for their persecution in the first. In popular imagination, as well as some scholarly literature, the great fire of Rome and Nero's subsequent persecution of Christians begins the so-called Age of the Martyrs. Our earliest martyrdom stories date to this period between the great fire and the persecution of the emperor uh, Decesus. 
Um, yet with the exception of Nero's tempestuous ac- accusations against Christians, there's no evidence to suggest that Roman emperors themselves were that interested in Christians during this period. For almost all of the first century, it's unclear that Roman emperors even knew that Christians existed. Right, so that casts serious doubt on um, the claim that these disciples were even persecuted at all and, uh, and killed. Um, I think what I'm trying to do, though, is to kind of assume that um, the sources that Josh McDowell is using to talk about the deaths of the, the disciples, assuming that they are historical, just to, uh, just to see if his argument holds, holds water. And I would say it doesn't hold water, because even if you assume that this whole Nero story that Tacitus talks about is true, um, it still doesn't have the disciples, uh, d- you know, dying with the ability to recant, which is really what you would have to have. You would have to, like, Josh McDowell is setting up this um, fictional scenario where you have Roman, basically Roman soldiers coming in and saying, um, recant your belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And the disciples say no, and then, they're, and then they're murdered. If that happened, that would back up Josh McDowell's claim here. Um, and, but that's not what happened, um, even if you accept Tacitus's history. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to, like, again, I want to cast doubt on the historical sources in the way that they use, the way that they tell historical stories, like, speaks to the time that these sources are are speaking. Um, the other interesting thing that Josh McDowell doesn't really deal with is the 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 um, positive aspect of all these accounts of... Um, the uh, deaths of the apostles is that you can precisely trace how the legend is like uh, forming and how it gets exaggerated and how it gets developed over time. So we have 14 different accounts of Peter's death that conflict so many different ways. They contradict each other um, and they get more complex as time goes on and they reflect the historical circumstances in which they're written. And they're like, if you are going to take, um, the account, for example, of uh, somebody online was arguing that the apostle John was actually martyred because he was boiled in hot oil. Well, that comes from Arrhenius, who is a dubious source, but it gets exaggerated by the time you get to the Middle Ages and is include with, like, included with, um, what is it, Peter, uh, Peter and the dragon. So are we going to take that account as a historical account as well? Like, it doesn't help you to say that we have... Um, a bunch of different accounts for how the disciples died. Um, it casts even more doubt on the historicity of those accounts because you can trace how they get, became more and more legendary as time went on. And you can also compare them and say, there's no way all of these could be true. Um, and then I think John also raises an interesting point that you would have to like take them in the context of the entire document that they're contained in and say, okay, if the apocalypse of Peter is true, um, if whatever document this comes from is true, then we have to take everything else that that document says is true too. And that creates a whole nother set of problems. Yeah. And I think that um, it's a circular argument ultimately, because what he's trying to do is prove a miracle, prove the resurrection, prove that the resurrection actually happened. And you can't um, prove a supernatural miracle by giving evidence of another dubious, miraculous claim. And John is a great example because the uh, story of uh, the Apostle John's martyrdom has Domitian 
uh, ordering John to be boiled to death in boiling oil. He's burned in the oil, but John is just refreshed by it in, in a miraculous event. Um, so after the boiling fails, he's exiled to Patmos, where he goes on to write um, Revelation. And that's one tradition. There's other tradition that has Nero um, uh, exiling him. And there's, there's lots of different traditions. But the whole point, these are written way after the fact. And they're, they themselves are miraculous tales in the same way that people don't believe the resurrection because it's a um, miraculous tale. You can't use another miraculous tale from centuries later as evidence to support that miraculous tale. Yeah, and I mean, even if you accept, so according to the apocryphal Acts of Peter, Peter was sentenced to die on the charge of atheism by the mad king Agrippa II. Like, these accounts, if you take them seriously, create more problems for you. Like, so Peter wasn't accused of being a Christian. He was accused of being an atheist, according to this account. Um, I, I, it's just really poor. And, and the other thing I just want to say. So first of all, I looked, because this is such an important claim for Josh McDowell, I really wanted to find out like where he was getting this, um, these claims about the 11 of the 12 uh, or at least 10 of the 12 dying uh, historically as martyrs for their faith. Um, and it's not in um, evidence that demands a verdict. You can't find even the sourcing for it there. You have to go back to more than a carpenter. And even then, it's a paragraph. He barely mentions it, and there's no good sourcing for it. Like, this is the crux of his argument. This is the most central, strongest thing that he says. The disciples must have known that they were either... that The, the disciples died, fact one. And fact two, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And fact three, according to Josh McDowell, is that they would have known that they were dying for a lie when they were put to death. Well, all of those three facts are totally in contention. It is interesting, like you said, that... Um, this doesn't actually appear in evidence that demands a verdict. It, it appears in his other book, More Than a Carpenter. And um, like you said, he doesn't go into a lengthy, a lengthy defense of this point because you really can't historically. And I think the reason we hear about it so much is that it's made such an impact on people. It sounds on the surface like it makes so much sense. Like if we really knew how the disciples died um, and if we really knew the claims that they were making before, for all we know, the disciples were claiming that Jesus was not bodily raised from the dead. He was raised spiritually. This was a debate going on in the early church. We see it in the letters of Paul. Um, so for all we know, they weren't even claiming that about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And if they were killed, again, I keep coming back to this, uh, we have no idea the circumstances that they were killed. As if they, ha We don't know if they did recant. How do we know? Maybe, uh, maybe uh, Andrew recanted. I mean, we have no like evidence of any of this stuff. It's just a claim. It's just an assertion to persuade people that don't want to do the research themselves. It's also like fascinating because these, I mean, these accounts are from hundreds of years later. So they're not like it's a claim that that's like historical is just a joke because um, they literally they're not like even close to contemporaneous with the actual lives of the disciples. They're hundreds of years after the Gospels were written or 100 years after the Gospels were written. Um, but the other interesting point, um, I think, is that um, there, 
there is an influence of there is a literary influence on these stories of um sort of ideas about how to go to death in a way and they're very influenced by like greco hellenized roman ideas um of what it means to have an honorable death and i'm sorry you can see that in the gospels you can see in mark where jesus is extremely bothered by going to his death and you see the later redaction in luke extremely influenced by uh his hellenized worldview where jesus is going willingly to his death he accepts the responsibility um without like the same angst that he has in mark this is a way of constructing tales about people going to their death that are not historical but are supposed to prove the honorableness of the people going to their death and again constructed for a theological purpose a theological purpose that is on behalf of the author of these texts theology and I just want to say, um, we haven't even gotten, gotten into this point, and um, Ben, I think you brought this up on a previous episode, but even if you grant all of these things to Josh McDowell, do we have other examples in history of the cognitive, the cognitive dis- dissidence where somebody would be willing um, to go to their death for something that they knew was a lie. Well, you brought up, Ben, uh, Joseph Smith, and I thought that was a great example. Here's somebody that, if Joseph Smith was lying, that means he forged the Book of Mormon. He wrote the Book of Mormon, and that's what I believe happened, and that's what most Christians believe happened. He wrote the Book of Mormon and pretend that, pretended that it was a... Um, sign from God that it was sent miraculously from God on golden tablets and um, that he didn't actually write it himself. So if Joseph Smith was lying, well, you know what? Joseph Smith was executed. So he died for something that he knew was a lie. It fits the exact criteria, almost to a T, to what Josh McDowell is talking about. And we have an example in very recent history of this happening. Um, What also comes to mind is the... um, Jehovah's Witnesses, who they knew that that the predictions of the second coming uh, were false because there had been three false predictions um, from prophets that said, this is when Jesus is going to return. Uh, I don't know the, the dates off the top of my head, but you know what? Jesus didn't return. And did all those people leave the church? No, they stuck with the church. So this happens over and over and over in human history, it's amazing what um, people can do, what people can believe in, even in the face of obvious evidence that it isn't true. It would be like if I had a religion that made the claim that its founder was going to return in the lifetime of its believers, and that didn't come true, and that religion was able to sustain and adapt and uh, reformulate itself. Well, I'm sorry, to state the obvious, that's what we have in Christianity. Christianity was able to survive the failed messianic return, the failed second coming of the Son of Man. It reinterpreted the clear indications in the Gospels um, where they say, you will see the Son of Man return in power. Those of you standing here will see this. Some of you won't pass away before you see this coming. The implication in Paul, I mean, we beat this concept to death, but it's super important for understanding how cognitive dissonance can survive. You have cognitive cognitive dissonance 
in what we know about the early church, because they had a failed prophecy of the return of the Son of Man during their lifetime. And by the time Peter is redacting that uh, theology, Peter, quote-unquote, in um, Second Peter, I think, a day is like a thousand years. So now... It's all, it's all been reinterpreted to uh, stretch the timeline. The cognitive dissonance is actually there in the text, if you look. Yeah, and for anyone interested to hear more on that, we did, I think, was it a one- or a two-part series on, uh, on the uh, second coming and the, um, the prediction in the Bible um, that Jesus makes that he will return during the lifetime of those that were there with him to see it. Um, so I would encourage anyone to go back and listen to that. We have a lot more to say about this. We're clearly um, going on for a long time. We're here at the end of this episode. Um, but we'll come back on the next episode and continue on with this and um, dive into it more in depth. So um, stay with us. Happy night all. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.